This morning we come to the uh, seventh part of our message series I'm calling Faith with Boots On. And the teaching title I've come up with is Miracles Come in Many Varieties. Now, by all accounts, the best definition of faith in the Bible is found in Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Well, in the old King James, it translates it this way. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, the word that's translated substance or being sure of comes from a Greek word that means to stand under. It's the firm reality which stands under something, kind of like a foundation stands under a house. In a similar sense, it could be used to refer to the title deed to a piece of property. Faith, then, is that solid foundation upon which we build our lives. It is like the title deed to the things we're hoping for. It gives substance to our dreams. Now, the word translated evidence or certain of comes from a Greek word that was used for legal proof needed to back up an accusation. Faith, in that sense, is the inner conviction that God will keep his promises. See, faith is like the evidence that's offered up in the courtroom. It produces an inner conviction that certain things are true. Uh, Faith makes real the things we hope for. It gives inner conviction to our dreams. I mean, faith makes the things we hope for so real that it's as if we already have them. So by faith, we see things that do not yet exist. I'm going to share with you one of the better definitions of faith I've ever heard. It goes this way. Faith is belief plus unbelief and acting on the belief part. Now, of course, we all know that belief is involved in faith. You have to believe something before you can have faith. I mean, if you go to the doctor, you got to believe they can help you. If you don't believe, you wouldn't go in the first place. Before you step on an airplane, you've got to believe it will stay in the air. If you don't believe, you'll end up taking the the train or the bus or hitchhiking. Uh, So belief is always the first part of faith. It's the conviction that certain things are true. Now, unfortunately, some people stop their definition of faith right there. They think faith is belief plus nothing else. Faith to them is pure belief without any mixture of doubt whatsoever. Now, I tell you, that's okay as long as you stay in bed and under the covers. But in this world, it's hard to arrive at 100% certainty about anything. I mean, you hope the doctor can help you, but maybe he's really a (laughs) a quack. Uh, You hope the plane stays in the air, but maybe a wing falls off. I mean, people who truly believe that faith means 100% certainty are paralyzed. They're waiting for something that will never happen. In truth, there's always unbelief mixed in with our belief. You see it best in the big decisions of life. Now, let me give you a little hypothetical example. Let's say you get a good job offer in another part of the country, great opportunity, but you don't really want to move. You're, you're kind of stuck in your present job. The kids are happy in school. Uh, your spouse doesn't want to move, but you found twice the house at half the money. You think you should, but some of your friends aren't so sure. So late at night, you lie awake, tossing and turning, first going one way and then going another. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that that's reality. You don't have 100% certainty, and you don't know of any way to get 100% certainty. You think so, you hope so, you pray for guidance, you seek counsel, you wait for a lightning bolt from heaven, but it never comes. So what is faith? Well, in the big decisions of life, it is not waiting for 100% certainty. Faith is wavering somewhere between belief and unbelief, between doubt and assurance, hope and despair, and finally, hesitantly, with your heart in your hands, it's acting on the belief part. Now, friends, let me put this very clearly. 
Uh, many people think living by faith means staying over in the belief column until you get certainty, but that almost never happens. In fact, I don't call that living by faith. I call that stalling by faith. Living by faith means acting on the belief part. It means taking a step of faith, however small, however halting, however unsure of yourself you may be. Now, take a survey of Hebrews 11. That's what we've been doing for the last seven weeks and see if it's not so. I mean, faith always means action or acting. For example, we go back to Hebrews 11, verse 4. Abel offered a better sacrifice. Verse 7, Noah built an ark. Uh, Verses 8 to 10, Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees. Verse 17, Abraham offered his son Isaac. Verse 27, Moses left Egypt. So let me say it again. Faith is belief plus unbelief and acting on the belief part. Now don't worry that your faith is always mixed with doubts. When you finally get up the courage to act on the belief part in spite of your doubts, well, then friends, you are truly living by faith. But there's more to the story. Living by faith is often very difficult and it doesn't always end up the way we would like. I mean, does living by faith mean you're always going to get a miracle? Well, the answer is no. We're going to go to the end of Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to consider some other heroes of faith. But this starts in verse 33. We're going to talk, first of all, about the triumphs of faith. Starting verse 33. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed routed foreign enemies, Women receive their dead back to life again. Now, these wonderful examples teach us that God sometimes intervenes on behalf of his people in miraculous ways. Sometimes miracles occurred in the heat of combat, where a vast army was defeated by the faithful few people of God. Read the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to understand what it means to, uh, to march into the fiery furnace and to quench the flames. Now, the phrase, women receive their dead back to life, well, you can go back and read that. That's the widow of Zarephath. That's in 1 Kings 17. You can read about the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings chapter 4. Now, in all of these examples, the writer of Hebrews calls to mind people who found themselves in humanly impossible situations, but when they cried out to God, he delivered them. Now, let's be honest. Christianity is a religion of miracles. Take the miraculous out of our faith, and you're left with nothing but a set of ethical instructions that have no power to change the heart. Subtract the miracles, and Christianity becomes just another religion. Without the miracles, we have no good news to share with the world. And the book is a book of miracles from first to last. Take away the miracles, and suddenly the book is no longer the word of God. It's just, well, it's just another book. Without miracles, there is no Christianity. Indeed, our faith rests on two gigantic miracles. Miracle one, we believe God became a man. Two, we believe that man, Jesus, rose from the dead. Now, if we're not astounded by that, we should be. It's not just that Jesus worked miracles. It's that he himself entered and exited this world by miraculous means. So we should read Hebrews 11 and think, these things happened, and they may happen again at any time. But since God is God and we are not, miracles are not ordered up like a pizza on a Sunday night. God doesn't work for us. Now, it's right at this point that we come to the core issue regarding miracles. You can't read the Bible without running into miracles, but they don't happen all the time, and you can't predict in advance when they'll happen. The fact, that fact ought to 
help us as we think about miracles today. And yes, we believe in miracles. And we pray and fervently believe and hope and trust and wait for miracles to occur. But understand, God works according to his will, and we cannot anticipate miracles even as we pray, wait, and hope for them. So the first part of the list is wonderful and should inspire us to trust God for amazing things, especially when we face the impossibilities of life. But, and there's always a but, isn't there? But that is only part of this story. So we're going to go on to verses 35 to 38 where we hear the trials of faith. It reads, Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned and they were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. Now, we need to stop there and say, who are these poor souls? What have they done to deserve such punishment? Well, the writer of the book of Hebrews simply calls them others. They are others who live by faith. These men and women who endured such torment were living by faith just as much as Noah, Abraham, Moses, or Joshua. Their faith was not weaker. If anything, it was stronger because it enabled them to endure incredible suffering. They are not lesser saints because they found no miracle. In fact, we might say they're greater because they were faithful even when things didn't work out right. Now, we need to see this clearly. Others were tortured. God does not always stop the hand of the persecutors. Others were chained and put in prison. Now, believe me, as someone who's worked in prison ministry for over 25 years, some of God's finest saints can be found behind prison walls, and we know that happens worldwide. They were sawed in two. Well, tradition says this is what happened to the prophet Isaiah and I think also to the uh, disciple Andrew. Uh, They were put to death by the sword. Well, that still happens. The world is not worthy of them. Well, their suffering was a gift from God to the world. So, friends, please get it clearly in your mind that these others who suffered did not lack faith. The point is they had great faith and they suffered anyway. There was nothing wrong with their faith. They were just as pleasing to God as the saints who were delivered by great miracles. Some were delivered, some suffered and died. All lived by faith and God was pleased with all of them. That's the real message of these closing verses of Hebrews 11. Remember, miracles come in many varieties. Some are outward and it's spectacular. Some are inward as God gives strength to his children as they suffer for him. And who's to say which is greater? In light of that, let me revise my definition of faith I shared earlier. Faith is belief plus unbelief and acting on the belief part without regard to the consequences. See, living by faith means you take a step of faith without knowing where it will lead you. If you're Noah, you're going to build an ark and hope it floats. If you're Abraham, you set off for the promised land and hope you get there before you die. I mean, if you're David, you face Goliath and you pray that you kill him with the first stone because you might not get a second chance. See, sometimes it works out the way you hoped. Other times it doesn't. Faith means you step out with no guarantees. Now, in preparing this message, I went back to reread a story I'd read many years ago. It's the story of a man named Telemachus. It's a true story about an Asiatic monk who lived during the early part of the 5th century. Now, one day as he was tending his garden at the monastery, he felt God calling him to go to Rome. 
Now, he'd never been to Rome before, had no idea why God even wanted him to go to Rome. But the feeling grew stronger until Telemachus knew he needed to make the long journey. So he set out across Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey, caught a boat for Rome. When he got there, he found the city was celebrating because the Romans had just defeated the Goths. Still, Telemachus had no idea why he'd come, but he noticed great crowds moving toward the famed Roman Colosseum. He followed the crowds, thought to himself, maybe this is the reason why God has called me here. Well, it turned out that the crowds had gathered for the gladiator contest where men would fight against men in the arena floor until only one man was still alive. It was then that the wild animals would be let loose to devour the bodies of the dead gladiators. Then, folks, it was a violent, bloodthirsty sport. The crowds came in to watch the action, and at length the gladiators marched in, saluted the emperor, and shouted, We who are about to die, salute thee. And then the pagan games began. Telemachus was shocked. He'd never seen such a thing before, but he knew that he could not keep silent while men killed each other for entertainment. And so in a a flash of blinding insight, Telemachus knew what he needed to do. He ran to the perimeter of the arena and he started shouting in a loud voice, In the name of Christ, stop! But the crowd paid him no heed. He was just one voice among thousands in the Colosseum. So Telemachus made his way to the edge of the arena, stepped out onto the floor, and there he was, rushing here and there, dodging the gladiators as they were trying to spear or sword each other. And he cried out again and again, in the name of Christ, stop, in the name of Christ, stop. And the crowd began to cheer, thinking maybe that he was part of the entertainment, kind of like a clown at a rodeo. But then he blocked the vision of one of the gladiators, causing him to narrowly avoid death. And then suddenly the mood changed and the crowd became angry and they began shouting at Telemachus, kill him, kill him, kill him. And the gladiator he had blocked took his sword and struck Telemachus in the chest. And immediately the arena floor turned sandy red from his blood. And as he fell to the ground and died, he cried out for the final time, In the name of Christ, stop. And then a strange thing happened. A hush fell over the arena. All eyes were focused on the still form in the crimson sand. The gladiators laid down their swords. One by one, the spectators left the seats and emptied the Colosseum. Now, historians tell us that that was the last gladiatorial contest in the Colosseum. Never again did men kill men for entertainment in that arena. When Telemachus died, the gladiator contest died with him. Now, think about that story for a moment, friends. Was Telemachus a man of faith? Yes. Did he obey God? Yes. Did he have his doubts? Oh, you bet he did. But... But he acted on the belief part without regard to the consequences. You see, friends, living by faith in the end meant dying by faith. But Telemachus made a difference. And the strength to live and die for Jesus is as much a miracle as being delivered from the lion's den. Now, as we come to the end of today's message, we can safely draw three conclusions about people who live by faith. One, they're going to see great triumphs and endure great trials. Second, they will be misunderstood by this world. And third, they'll be glad they did what they did in the end. And so it is, friends, Jesus calls us to follow wherever he leads, whatever it costs. And his word to all of us is always the same. Come, follow me, try it out, put your life in my hands. Now, I wish I could promise each of you a long, happy life, but I can't.
You may live to be 90 or 100. You may die tomorrow. Your path may be easy. It might be an unending struggle. But if you decide to live by faith, well, there are no guarantees. You may end up witnessing vast miracles or you may be counted among the, quote, others who suffered for Jesus. I cannot promise you an easy road if you decide to follow Jesus. But this I can promise you. You will be blessed and you won't be sorry. And in the end, you will discover that the life of faith is full of adventure and you will be glad you are not a pew potato or couch potato and that you dared to make a difference in the world.